The recent uncovering of an alleged plot to blow up nine passenger planes has refocused attention on what some commentators have declared as the enemy within. What has characterized the latest plots and the 2005 London bombings is that those involved were not foreign extremists, but instead originated from within the UK. Fears of a large, disaffected and radicalized jihadist movement seem to be justified. In the face of such fears, we may need to take a reality check to properly understand the threat that faces us and how best to tackle the challenges ahead. How do we deal with the threat of terrorist acts, the sources of radicalization and resolve growing tensions between communities? Hisham Hellyer is a policy analyst, academic and commentator based at the University of Warwick as an associate fellow of the Centre for Research in Ethnic Relations. As deputy convener of the UK government's Home Office Working Group on tackling extremism and radicalisation, Hisham has written extensively on European Muslim communities, extremism and the war on terror. Hisham, um, there's been a great deal of media comment about the enemy within, um, a phrase I think that was first bandied around during the Cold War. Is this a fiction created by anti-Islamic interests, or are there really elements out there that we should be extremely concerned about? The enemy within is a very interesting phrase. As you, as you mentioned, it started during a period long before this one, and it wasn't uh, completely untrue at that time, and it's not completely untrue at this time either. The problem that I have with using it is that it then takes advantage of legitimate concerns and exploits them to uh, devastating effect. Uh, there may indeed be an enemy within in the sense that we have elements within our society that are looking to destabilize our society in various ways, and those are not limited to radical uh, Muslim extremists, but to many other elements within our society. And as I mentioned in an article that I wrote for The Guardian, uh, there are many enemies within. On the other hand, this is a phrase that doesn't just exploit um, a legitimate concern within British society, but also tends to overlook uh, the reality of the situation. When we say the enemy within comes from radical Islamic extremists, as it has become quite common in, uh, in the media of late, we tend then to characterize a whole community by this type of label. And then we fail to recognize that by so doing, we actually endanger ourselves by creating this image of a ghastly uh, behemoth of an enemy within that we are then unable to take real stock of or to engage uh, in eliminating, uh, in a sense. And the idea of an enemy within being an entire community is very dangerous indeed. And it does allow us the uh, the escape uh, by in which we we actually do not engage with the enemy within at all. In the face of explosions on the underground and the kind of the chaos that you see that we've seen recently at the kind of UK airports, isn't it a kind of a natural response to try and to, to, to sort of associate uh, particular groups as being the enemy? If if there weren't these explosions, if there weren't these threats. Um, then would we be seeing this kind of this response of, of seeing an enemy where perhaps there isn't one? I wonder if that's the case because in every single period of uh, British history or European history, whenever there's a crisis, we tend to look um, at a community to scapegoat, and this is a this is a great problem because if you do that, then you uh, of course it's understandable 
um, owing to the crisis that our society is going through at the moment. As you said, we did have the 7th of July attacks, and we've also had these recent alarms at the airports. Uh, so there is obviously some sort of problem going on. It's not uh, incomprehensible to the human mind to see why that would be. But we still have to resist that uh, temptation to characterize a whole community like that because it's simply not effective. If I thought that this would be an effective way to combat extremism, then I would say so. Um, I have no uh, sympathy with extremist movements, but I don't think that this is an effective way to go about the issue. We have a serious issue in our society relating to these sorts of movements. And if we don't take stock of them correctly and accurately, instead of simply jumping to... Uh, media sensationalities, then we risk actually not being able to solve the problem in the first place through our own uh, overloading of the question. Is the difficulty here, though, that we see an immediate threat and demand immediate responses, but that the kind of solutions that you've been talking about require a much longer-term approach? Are we in a position where we have the luxury of being able to take that long-term approach, or um, are, we going, are we going to be forced down a road where we take extreme action in order to meet an immediate threat? Well, this is the temptation, really. Everybody seems to think that because we're undergoing a certain crisis that we have to take extreme measures to protect ourselves. And this is the temptation, and this is the reason why we're having all of these discussions regarding civil liberties. Um, I would say in response to that, though, um, that just simply listen to what people in the police and the intelligence services have been saying. We've already had quite a few terrorist attacks attempted on our society already, and they've been foiled. And they've been foiled through good intelligence, through good detective work, through good partnership with various communities. And I think that that's a reason to be hopeful. It's, uh, it's also not the case that we need to only concentrate on some sort of long-term solution. Uh, we already have uh, many within the police and within the intelligence services and within different sectors of our society battling this problem on a crisis management, we have to do it now sort of basis. We have that already and we should keep on having that and we should try to empower those efforts um, as much as possible. But in the process, without losing what makes us uh, proud of our society in the first place. We could turn Britain into a complete police state and then remove any issue of extremism from the extremist communities that we're talking about, but then we wouldn't, ha uh, we wouldn't have uh, anything to protect. We would have become an extreme community as a whole anyway, because we would have given up any respect for for law or for civil liberties uh, as a result, and the terrorists would have in indeed won. Um, in order to tackle this problem, we need to have a twofold approach, a, a short-term, a medium-term uh, approach in which we battle the, the problems on a criminal basis, on an intelligence basis, and so on, and a long-term approach. Extremism does not happen in a vacuum. Extremism doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time, and it will also take a long time to dismantle Who's got the responsibility for dismantling that? Um, I mean, the government obviously is taking a lead, but doesn't some of the responsibility for resolving these issues lie within the Muslim communities in the UK and Europe to put, your, to put their own houses in order? You're absolutely right in that it's not simply the government that needs to take respons uh, takes responsibility for this issue. 
um, the the whole problem deserves to be tackled from everybody who has a role in it. And if the, the government has a role in it, then so does the Muslim community have a role in it, not just in this country, but elsewhere. And, it's, and the problem of extremism isn't just a problem that needs to be tackled from within Europe, uh, but needs to be tackled worldwide, uh, from different communities worldwide. But I would very much like to make the point that it's not simply the case that you can, simp that you can call up the Muslim community, pull them into a room and say, look, there's an extremist problem on our streaks, sort it out. The, most of the time, the people that you bring into that room in the first place are not going to have the capacity to actually deal with those uh, those problems simply because they have no relationship to them. I'll try to elaborate on that a little bit. People who are radical, people who are extreme, um, especially when it comes to religion, the people they fear the most are individuals from within their own faith communities who know that they are acting on the basis of a heresy. And this is what has happened in the Muslim community, that that marginalized, very small minority of radicals, they operate on the basis of a very warped religious um, idea. Um, targeting civilians is forbidden in traditional contemporary Islamic law. Um, you, you simply can't do it. Now, if somebody was going to act on the basis that you could, either they would be completely anti-religion in the first place, i.e., no, I'm not going to pay attention to this rule because I think that religion has nothing to do with any of this, or they've completely misinterpreted religion in the first place and said, no, this is allowed by my religion on this basis. And this is what's happened in the Muslim community. And when people do that, the last people that are going to know about it by and large, not completely, but by and large, are going to be the people who, who live in the mainstream, who reside in that mainstream, because they're the ones that have the most uh, uh, to be afraid of in the first place. Uh, a heretic is not going to make himself known as such to somebody who is orthodox. Mm. It simply doesn't work. They may make themselves more known to people who are not part of that faith community, but to the people who are orthodox... Orthodoxy has uh, quite a responsibility to, you know, take these sort of elements out of the equation as much as possible, or to marginalise them, and they know it. In an editorial for the um, the time, there was some comment that um, the sort of hotbeds of um, radicalism within the UK kind of focus around university communities, but also um, deprived areas within our major cities, um, and. I suppose one of the criticisms that you, you could level is that the efforts that the government are involved in are hitting the wrong people. Are we talking to the right people? Well, we're talking to some of the right people. And I don't think that the people that we're talking to are the wrong people. The problem is is that um, the people that we're talking to are representational community figures. Representational community figures are usually not the ones that are involved with radical, marginalized movements. By definition, they're not on the margins. They're in the center. And they may have a complete disconnect to the margins. Another issue, um, the UK Muslim community is a young community. It's predominantly a very young community, whereas the representational bodies are just as most representational bodies are 
characterized by, are made up of older, middle-aged people. Again, there's a disconnect. Um, and this causes a problem when constructing policy, because you invite people to talk about certain policies on the basis of the fact that they've organized themselves, that they claim to represent communities and so on, and they do. It's not that the, the Muslim Council of Britain, for example, doesn't uh, uh, have a, a bad claim in that area. They do represent a, a big proportion of the UK Muslim community, but even they do not, uh, do not claim to represent the whole community. And then all of these new uh, bodies that have popped up as well, the British Muslim Forum, the Sufi Muslim Council, there are all sorts of organizations that are around in the UK British Muslim community at the moment, and it's, it's just getting more and more uh, diverse in terms of representation. But all of those groups together, they may still not be the ones that actually talk to or engage with those components of the community uh, that may have uh, that disaffection felt the most. We're talking about sort of lots of separate communities here. Um, doesn't this current situation really spell the death knell for the vision of a multicultural society in Europe? If I were to say yes, that wouldn't just be a pessimistic answer. That would be assuming an outcome. Um, having different communities is not necessarily a bad thing or a difficult thing to manage. You can have a multicultural society with many different communities. The question is, is what we will do with that. We have certain issues on the table right now that require us to ask certain questions of multiculturalism and certain questions of, um, of nationalism and patriotism and you know how we define ourselves as Britons and Europeans and so on. If we define them in one way, then multiculturalism or however you want to call it, um, uh, a liberal society, whatever, uh, it doesn't have to be the end of it. But if we define it in another way, or if we answer the question in another way, then yes, we're going to shrink away from the successes that we've had in the late 90s where we accepted diversity and we accepted uh, that people weren't always going to be the same on certain things. Um, but we have to think about it very carefully. I think you addressed some of these issues in, in your forthcoming book, um, European Muslims, where I think you argue that Europe has to come to terms with all of its history, past and present, um, and that there's an interesting, quite, an interesting way that you talk about this, that Muslim communities should work to be integral to, rather than simply integrated parts of Europe. What do you mean by that statement about being integral to Europe? Well, if I could go to the first part of the statement, and that was about Europe coming to terms. Um, Europe does need to come to terms with all parts of its history uh, within and how it's related to the world without. Um, otherwise, they're not going to be able to come to terms with many of the people who have actually come from without, um, as well as their own internal history of within. And that's something very important that uh, Europe as a whole has to deal with. Um, in terms of the Muslim community's role and whether they're integral or integrated and so on. Um, multiculturalism and the history of Islam in Europe over the past sort of 30, 40, 50 years um, has gone through certain phases. It used to be Islam and Europe. And that meant that Islam was something very separate and usually outside of Europe. Then it became Islam in Europe. So it's sort of we've got a European uh, situation and Islam is in it. So it's still not quite part of it, but it doesn't exist on the on the outside anymore. It's it's inside. Um, so we've got to relate to it. 
but it's still us and them. It's still us Europeans relating to these um, Islamics, in quotation marks, inside our, our domain. Um, and then finally, we're getting to a stage, it's not complete yet, but we're getting to a stage where it becomes Europe, uh, Islam of Europe, or European Islam, or Muslims of Europe. And that, for me, signifies what we're talking about when we say integral to Europe. Um, my final vision of Muslims in Europe is not for them to be integrated into Europe, i.e. we have a sort of patchwork quilt and Muslims are, you know, that part there and that part there and that part there, but rather that they are uh, a flavor or they're a dye that permeates throughout the entire canvas. That's a very different sort of approach. Um, but it requires uh, it requires an internal community dynamic uh, that usually takes uh, generations to come up with, and we're asking uh, a community to do this practically overnight. And w uh, communities have never done that very quickly, and I think that compared to other communities, and in terms of their numbers and in terms of their uh, the time that they've spent and so on, the Muslim community is. Uh, it's quite remarkable that they've even gotten that far. Mm. We we complain about it a lot because we're comparing it to uh, times that are before modernity and we're comparing it to the size of populations that are really not comparable at all. We, we For example, we compare the, the Muslim community to the Jewish community. The Jewish community is very integral to British society. But the British-Jewish community was much smaller than the British-Muslim community and it still is much, much smaller. And even though it was much smaller, even though it was much smaller, it still took them generations to get to this point. And we're asking this of a Muslim community that is huge, that comes from predominantly uh, from you know uh, uh, certain close-knit communities in the first place, and they haven't been here all that long in those sort of numbers. So lots of things are different, and. I'm not surprised that it's taking a little bit of time, but in terms of the time that they've already done a lot of what they've done, I think that it's quite remarkable. In the current situation, we've already talked about how um, there's a temptation to go down a route that takes us into an alternative extremism um, in terms of control and, and, and a police state. Are those the general risks of taking a kind of narrow vision, that a narrow exclusive vision of what Britain is? British society as much as any other society in Europe, um, has to deal with this issue of defining itself in a way that respects all the components that exist in the society. I think that British society has less to worry about than a lot of other societies, um, simply on the basis of the, the strength of the far right or the popularity of the far right that uh, have been shown in opinion polls and uh, political successes and so on. Um, having said that, the issue of how we define ourselves as Britons in uh, in the current political situation, that's that's an issue that could very easily go uh, one of two ways. To go the way of defining it in a very broad sense, um, and it could go in the way of defining it in a very narrow sense. This is an issue that doesn't belong to the right wing, or to the extreme right wing, I should say. This is an issue that belongs actually to all spectrums of the political spectrum, all parts of the political spectrum. Um, all of the political parties are going to be talking about this if they haven't done so already, and they will, st they will talk about it even more over the next few years. 
and the issues that the extreme right bring up are not going to remain only the domain of the extreme right. Um, they will become part of the mainstream. They will become questions that people are going to be asking a lot, especially when it comes to issues of identity and what defines us as Britons. Now, that's actually something that I think will define our political uh, culture for the next 30 or 40 years. It's already been shown, it's already showing throughout all of Europe, and it's going to be showing very, very much in the UK. We've got to be very careful about how we deal with that, because at the moment there's a tendency among some parts of the center, or the center and the center left and the center right to treat some of those issues as though they only concern the, the far right. If we do that, then we risk alienating a lot of people in the center who simply haven't made their feelings, uh, uh, haven't articulated their feelings yet, and we're going to run the risk of leaving those issues to parts of this political spectrum that are not going to make for a very cohesive or successful society. Um, a lot of the, this debate is sort of, I suppose, underpinned by the war on terror that um, that that's kind of that's currently undergoing. Does it actually help? to think in terms of a war. The problem with that sort of description of the current uh, situation that we're in is that it it's very misleading, to be honest with you, because terrorism isn't simply a radical or extreme uh, situation. It's not something that just prop, uh, came up in the 21st century. Um, we've had terror against populations for uh, for decades and centuries and uh, it still goes on it's not uh, the uh, the primary domain of radical muslim extremists um the state department publishes uh, terrorism statistics every year and uh, as far as i know the majority uh, not the largest amount of but rather the majority of terrorist actions that take place um don't actually come from radical muslim groups anyway um, and calling it the war on terror, well, you can't have a war on a noun. You have a war on certain groups or you have a war on certain states and so on. So I don't know how useful that is. And mm. it's also very easy to misinterpret. Um, I spend a lot of time visiting uh, different parts of the Muslim world in my research, and the war on terror is always represented as the war on Islam. It's very rarely represented as the war on terror. So it remains as, as a noun, but it's, uh, it's the war on Islam because they see other acts of terror taking place that are not characterized within this war on terror at all. And because of that, it's, uh, it's very easy to misinterpret. It seems that's only one type of terror that's being... Uh, targeted for war. So where do we go from here? What's the, the, the kind of strategy that, that sees us in, say, 30 years' time with a, a peaceful and reconciled um, solution to this problem? Uh, well, the first thing is to, is to ask the question exactly in the way that you did. Where do we see ourselves 30 years from now or 40 years from now? This is a great issue that I have with most of the uh, the policies and strategies that we seem to be taking at the moment that we're not looking 
in the future seeing, okay, this is what we want and this is how we're going to get there. We're just responding. We're just reacting on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. We're lucky if it's, you know, one year to the next. But we're not thinking long-term at all. I wish that we were, and I wish that I could say that we are both in communities and uh, in the mainstream as well. But I don't think that we are at all. I think that we're just reacting. Um, if we were looking long-term, then we have to realize that this is going to be a long-term issue. There are going to be things that we do on the long-term, and that involves recognizing that uh, people have different parts of their identity that they want recognized and that should be recognized. Uh, taking into account, and this is very important, this is, uh, this is a critique that's often thrown at the multiculturalist school of political thought, but although I happen to think that it's not one that's entirely legitimate, but it's an important critique nonetheless to take, that respect for diversity doesn't mean that you don't respect the need for some sort of cohesive uh, collective identity. It's okay to be different. It's also okay to be the same. And this is something very important for all of us to realize. We we can't simply leave it at, okay, we, we will fight for diversity to be respected. We also have to struggle to ensure that we have a, a cohesive identity that then allows us to relate to each other and build a successful society. That's That's something very important to do. That sort of struggle takes place not only from the mainstream, not only from communities, but all... Th- all through sectors of our society, whether it's government, whether it's voluntary organizations, whether it's the civil service, whether it's uh, representational bodies, and so on and so on and so on. And we haven't we haven't really thought that long-term uh, strategy out yet. Hisham, thank you very much.